a time of worship and, and remembrance. Uh, very important to what we're doing as a, a body. And now I want to invite you to uh, join me uh, in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 4 this morning. So if you would, uh, open your Bibles up to chapter 4 with me. We'll be looking at God's Word together uh, today. We find ourselves now uh, halfway through, believe it or not, halfway through our study in the book of Ephesians. For some, uh, maybe you're looking at it, you're like, man, already halfway through? It's, time's flying uh, as we study this book. Maybe you're feeling like, man, only halfway through? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot left to Ephesians. And, and either way, yeah, there, there's a lot left and a lot of really great stuff uh, that we're going to be getting into. And Paul if you'll allow it, maybe, uh, I know in, in my Bible, we, we literally turn a page uh, today, but figuratively, Paul uh, turns a page uh, in this letter uh, as he moves into chapter 4, where he's going to be uh, kind of shifting gears from the, the more doctrinal foundations, the, the theological uh, teachings of the letter, and, and getting kind of down to earth uh, with some very practical instructions moving forward. In chapters 1 through 3, almost in their entirety, we saw a couple of prayers, but for the most part, Paul was laying this foundation of sound biblical doctrine. And it's on that foundation now that he's going to be shifting gears and building on that, uh, addressing sound living as Christians uh, that we started to, to kind of get into at the end of uh, chapter 3 uh, with his prayer and addressing, as Bill said, life in the family of God. So uh, if you would, it's almost in one sense as though Paul has identified the, the family, uh, the, the key features of the family, who's, who's part of the family and what that means. And now he's going to outline, well, well, what does that mean for us to then live in this family? How do we go about living as Christians? Uh, how do we go about living in this community as he's outlined? Uh, and he gets down to that nitty gritty of what does our walk look like with Christ? He spent great lengths in, in some sense, and yet the very real sense, just briefly scraping the surface uh, to address the spiritual wealth that we have in Christ. These, these abundant blessings that he, he gushed about in chapter 1, uh, he, he espoused on in chapter 2 and kind of fleshed out on what that looks like. Uh, and now he invites us into the walk that we have within that wealth in Christ. And the reality is... You can't separate one from the other. And that's why Paul doesn't do that. He's not, he doesn't separate the walk from the wealth that we have in Christ, uh, but he unites them together. Uh, it's, it's as if if you were to have one without the other, they, they really wouldn't stand up. You, you're not going to have an appropriate walk if you don't have the proper footing or foundation of the doctrine behind it. And, and likewise, if you don't have the proper uh, foundation, you're, you're not going to you're going to find yourself really struggling to walk this thing out and to live it out. And so that's why as we enter into this more practical down-to-earth section of the book of Ephesians, Paul starts it out in verse 1 of chapter 4 saying, I therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
And just as we, we do with the Scriptures, we did it earlier in Ephesians, we find him saying, therefore, in this one, uh, he's not so much just in reference backwards to you know, the, the couple of verses or thoughts that he shares right before this. But here when Paul's saying, therefore, he's good, taking us kind of back in a survey over everything that he's brought up so far. All of the things he's discussed, everything he has wrestled with. So therefore, being that since we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Therefore, since we have adoption as sons into God's household, therefore, since we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins, therefore, since we've been sealed in the Spirit, since we've been given an inheritance, therefore, since we've been brought near to God, and therefore, since we've been made alive and given power to live out good works that God has prepared beforehand, Therefore, in view of all of those things, as if we could take any one of those things, and that in and of itself would be a great and abundant blessing in the Lord. But all those things combined, therefore, walk worthy of the calling that's been placed upon you. And it's, it's interesting, as you look at this, that, that it says, Paul says, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling. Now, the interesting part is he, he doesn't he doesn't command us to walk worthy of the calling in the, in the typical sense of the command. He, he could just say, walk worthy. But he says, I urge you, uh, which carries with it a little bit of a different connotation than commanding to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that what Paul is saying is just kind of a mere encouragement. He's not just saying, eh, it would be nice if you walked worthy. It has the idea, like, think Paul is pleading with these people. Please walk worthy of such the calling that's been placed in your life. I implore you to walk closely with this. It's closer to that. I'm begging you, walk worthy of the calling. And if you will, you'll notice that as he does that, in verse 1 right there, he reminds them in a sense that he's got skin in the game. Right? I, therefore, just to remind you of what I've just said in, in chapter 3, a prisoner for the Lord urge you. So, if you were to go back to that, it's almost in one sense like Paul is reminding them, guys, listen, I have, I have put my neck on the line for the sake of you hearing the gospel. I'm imprisoned on account of this gospel, and in, in large part because I've brought it to the Gentiles. And I've preached boldly throughout all of the regions I've been in. So walk worthy of this. You know, you picture a man in prison saying, don't waste the opportunity that you've been given. Don't waste the calling, this incredibly high calling that has been placed on your life. So walk worthy of it. And he's going to flesh that out over the next three entire chapters. What on earth does he mean? How do we, how do, we do that? How do we walk worthy and so we're going to examine that this morning as we get into this because he's, he's setting some structure for us in these first 14 verses of chapter 4 of what that's going to look like. So without further ado, let's look at our passage this morning. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, if you'll uh, look at that with me together. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body in one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that, bring, that belongs to your call, one Lord, 
one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a passage. Would you pray with me as we turn our attention to to talking through this and ask God's blessing. Our Father, we come before you grateful for these, this great foundation that has been laid in the book of Ephesians. Who we are, as Bill reminded us, the, the emphasis on not just who we are, but whose we are. That we belong to you, God. We are in your household. Or that we have been united to you by the work of Christ, and as such, we've been united to one another. So, Lord, I pray as we take these short verses, just a part of this book, and unpack them, that you would bless the time before us, that you would help us to focus our attention, you'd help give understanding to your word, that you would, you would help bring application to our lives, that we might live, as Paul urges us, worthy of the calling that you have called us to. So, Lord, we pray all of these things unto your glory and to the the blessing and maturity of your church. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So, Paul is, in some ways, he's working through this book, if you'll follow the analogy of it, kind of like building the house, right? As you build a house, you you build that foundation, that's what he has done uh, so far in chapters 1 through 3. A solid and firm foundation, so much that, that Paul even says that this foundation, the chief cornerstone of it is Christ himself, the foundation being built by the, the prophets and the apostles that he talks about early in chapter 3. Here in in the beginning of chapter 4, it's Paul building on that foundation. He's building, if you will, the the structure of the home. He's framing the walls before what he'll get into even later in the the book, kind of like putting the finish work on, right? The, the, The delicacies of the things that you might see around you, that you might appreciate, that the eye may see. And, And Paul builds all of these things together. Because they're essentially important. Because without any single one of them, what would the house become? If you will, if you did not have a foundation, then your structure would have nothing firm to be built on. 
And the, the, now it doesn't matter how beautiful and how intricate this house and all of its adornings might be. When there's no foundation, the house will inevitably crumble. So we build the strong foundation, understanding who we are in Christ, understanding what that means, even for us in the context of community with one another. Then Paul moves here in the first 16 verses of chapter 4 to build that structure because without the structure, without framing the walls and defining the parameters of the house, in essence what you will have is you find yourself putting finished work on a bunch of concrete or brickwork that lays underground. It's not much of a livable place. There's no roof over your head. There's, there's nothing. The structure doesn't exist. And so you have to build the structure. And then he's going to get into kind of those adorning works, those things that we might think of like, like the, the, the trim works of the building where you look at it and you're like, wow, that's, that's a beautiful thing. But without the structure, you don't have that to put up. And if you don't have uh, even the trim work put up, uh, the, the sad reality is, is that the house may be livable, right? How, I don't know about you guys, confession moment. Uh, our house still has some trim work that needs to be put up. Uh, we started projects a few years ago, and I just need a few more days. <laughs> just a few more days to wrap it all up. And may, maybe, maybe your home's the same way. You've got projects that are in process and things that need to go on. But the home is livable, but Paul doesn't leave us at a place, and he's not going to leave us at a place where we look at the structure of the building and just say, hey, that's great. But he furnishes it, and he's going to do that uh, later in the book. And you need all of these things together to, to kind of create this, this mature and complete house. And likewise, we need all of these things together if we're going to have a mature and complete and robust understanding of what it means to be a member of the household of God. And so we need this stuff. We're going to discuss these things, but the structure that he builds on today in these 14 verses helps so much to frame, to give something of substance, to kind of hang the adorning finishing work on that we're going to talk about throughout the rest of the book. It's in this context. It's in uh, this framework that we're going to live all these things out. And so, if you will, what we're going to do today is kind of join with Paul in building this house. And so, uh, the first step of, of kind of uh, understanding this structure that Paul is building is this, that, that he urges us as believers to practice what you preach. We ought to practice what we preach. You want to live in the household of God. You want to operate in a healthy way within the household of God. You want to see the household of God operate in a healthy manner. It involves practicing what we preach. You'll notice um, literally in this concept that Paul has of walking worthy of, that, that's quite the picture that's brought to mind is if you would picture a, a set of scales. Right now, one side of this set of scales, you have this great calling that we have been given in life. And what Paul is saying is our conduct ought to match that calling. They, they should be equal to each other. The calling shouldn't be so much more that the conduct doesn't equate to it. So our conduct as believers is saying all through and through, we, it should be equal to such a calling. Live up to it. Live worthy of it. It should be consistent of those things. And one of the, those key uh, themes that Paul has been developing in this book is the unity of the body of Christ. Right? That was a, such a big point that he's made in chapter 2. Right, Jew and Gentile now made one in the flesh of Christ that he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. 
This is a massive uh, reconstruction of what the societal and cultural boundaries would have been for these people in the first century. And he's saying that's, we do that not just because that's what we say we should do, but because that's what the calling is. The calling is one body, one household, fellow citizens. We are together in this, so we ought to live that out. And throughout this letter, we've seen him kind of bringing that up because it's not just our unity with one another, but it's our unity with God, right? Isn't that how he started the whole book off? That, that this concept that we have forgiveness, we have redemption. He says in chapter two that we were once far off, but now we've been brought near, right? We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So all of these things, this, this unity, not just with other believers, but this unity with God. And it's in that context that Paul is saying, man, the way we live our lives, this, this community, this community of believers ought to reflect what we preach about the doctrines and theologies of the church. So if those things are true, if it's true that you are far off and have been brought in here, if it's true that Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, then man, we ought to reflect that in how we go about living our lives together in the household of God. That we ought to have community. That we ought to have unity with one another. It matters. It's not just one of those things that, that we preach about and say, hey, this is a good uh, standard to achieve to. You know, this is something that we ought to be committed to. The question is, uh, what do we get at in that? How do we go about doing that? And Paul, right at the, in, in verse 2 here, says that if we're going to be doing this, if we're going to be walking worthy, if we're ever going to have any hope, in living in this unity that, that we preach and we proclaim and we celebrate, it's going to have to involve a little bit of who you are. It's not just bound up in some weird church strategies. You get the elders together, or the staff of the church, and they can come up with some fun events to foster fellowship. And it's like, yeah, we can just, if we just do the right things. That No, it, Paul starts as it's being the right person, the right people. Verse 2, we are to do this with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity. Now it's interesting that as you look at these character traits that Paul brings up, they're, they're not just any character trait. They're not just any, any conduct or, or any um, attributes of, of, of a person, but these are very selfless in their nature. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. These things... They're very others-oriented, aren't they? If you kind of break them down. They are selfless because unity, either with our, with our peers or with God, is going to be rather difficult if we don't have humility, wouldn't it? Because without humility in the context of, of our church unity or our unity with the Father, it means we might be rather self-seeking in that relationship then rather than humbling ourselves, we, we want what we want. And when we are, are in that place, then perhaps we view other people as nothing more than just a means to an end. So yeah, I might have unity with you as long as I stand to benefit from you. If you have something to offer me, then I'll pursue relationship with you. And Paul's saying, listen, we need humility because when we're, when we're humble, we're not just in relationship with one another for self, 
It's no longer just about me. It's not just about my family. Suddenly it's about the family, the church. It matters. Humility does. Gentleness carries with it this, uh, this implication of, of us having our emotions under check. Right? It's, the, it's the same word that we sometimes uh, might translate from the Greek into English as meekness. Right? Jesus described as meek, right? even as he uh, enters into Jerusalem as we celebrate communion. Right? As he enters into Jerusalem on the, the triumphal entry, riding in not on a, a, in the Calvary with swords and, and a whole army behind him, but on a donkey, knowing full well, thank you Bill for exactly reminding us, knowing full well what was in store. Meekness. It has this picture that, you know what, I, I am willing in my gentleness to, to be wronged. I am willing in my gentleness to, to maybe even have to suffer a little bit for the sake of the whole. That we would be marked by that. Because without gentleness, we might, we might find ourselves as a bunch of hopeless misfits that when we wrong each other, there's no true hope for reconciliation because we might just fly off the handle and be like, dude, you, you ticked me off. You've sinned against me. We're done. We can't have that. But this gentleness goes kind of hand in hand with patience and long-suffering. You start to see the point? If we're to live this thing out, we ought to practice what we are preaching. And it's not just in gimmicks. It's in developing our character. Being who God has created us to be. It's a process. That's why we need patience. That's why we need long-suffering with one another because you and I, each of us, are in process. We are growing. And as we grow together, there's a great richness and a joy of getting to be part of that process with one another. See, the, the, the point that Paul continues to, to kind of drive home in this book, especially as we see it kind of fleshing out here, is that the Christian walk, it is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. It's not like golf where you go out there and it's, it's between you, that golf club, and the ball. And it is up to your skill and ability to do the best that you can do it's like a, a team. We, you each have a role. We each have, we each have a function on this team. We work together as this team to bring this out. And that's where, as a, as a team, you put on the same jersey, don't you? you you're identified together as the team. You, you look like your teammates, yet you carry out different functions. You work for the same goal. You are together. You win and you lose as a team. And that's what Paul continues to bring up. And, and he reiterates this so clearly that, that listen, in verses 4 through 6, he reminds us seven times in those verses he uses the word one. Seven times. Like you cannot read this passage without this concept of oneness just, just hammering you home. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God, one spirit, one body, one. 
We are one. We are a team in this. And, and there's a beauty in that. But Paul reminds us that, that even in that, that oneness, there's diversity, right? That's why verse 7 comes to play. Right? Isn't it interesting to you, at least in the ESV, the beginning of verse 7, in view of all of this oneness, Paul says, but... Does it kind of strike you as strange that, that why would he throw but in there? Because typically, but is like this contrast of something. Like, like one but. And you wrestle with that and you sit there and you start to see, well, what's he drawing out here in verse 7? We are one, but just because we are one doesn't mean we all look exactly alike. Doesn't mean that we are all one and the same. Our unity is one. The basis of our unity is one. But notice verse 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That there is a diversity in the giftings of God within this one body, by this one Spirit. That we ought to not look all the same, just the same way as you want to watch a football team go out and play, and if they are all quarterbacks, that team's going to struggle. Likewise, if they're all big old offensive linemen, they're probably going to struggle, right? A healthy, strong team has a diversity of positions and roles and strengths and specialties within it. And that team is, is found beautiful in harmonizing when all of those different things begin to work in harmony with one another. And that's where Paul is getting at here, that we're unified, not uniform, if you were to take the, the terminologies. That we are, are finding a way to embrace the differences of the grace that God has given to us, the different gifts that God has given to us, and work in harmony within this body for that role. For that one purpose, the glory of God. To live worthy of the calling that he's placed upon our lives. I'll be honest, that gets a little bit difficult for us when, number one, you don't know what that role is. It's kind of hard to function on a team when you don't know what it is that you're bringing to the team. And you might find yourself feeling in a, in a bit of limbo. What am I supposed to do? What's my role? What's my function? How can I contribute to this? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there right now. Struggling, not knowing what what is it exactly that how God has gifted me that I might be able to contribute to this team. It's also really challenging when you want to fulfill a role that isn't yours to fill. I remember uh, back before... My senior year started, we were in summer league, and my coach comes up to me before one of our uh, summer league tournaments, and he goes, Jeremy, listen, I think we're going to try something new. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, high school me. I'm always down for something new. And he goes, we're going to try you at point guard. I go, whoa, less fun, coach. Not so much a a good idea, because point guards, there's a lot of response. You've got to be able to handle the ball. Quickness helps, none of which was I very strong with. And uh, needless to say, we tried it for that tournament, and... uh, it wasn't a very fun tournament for myself or my team because my coach was trying to put me in a position that I was not equipped, was not gifted and skilled to fulfill. It makes it hard. It can make it very frustrating. But God has gifted us with different skill sets, different passions, and the church becomes this awesome, wonderful, fun place to be when those skill sets start to work in harmony with one another. 
When instead of competing against one another for different roles, different whatever, we say, okay, this is how God has equipped me. This is how God has gifted me. And we live in that gifting. There's something, I want to say, there's, there's something empowering about that. When we live within those giftings. Paul's point is this to you. You are a part of the each one of us that has been gifted by Christ. And we each have a responsibility, you have a responsibility to use that gift to minister for the mutual maturity of all believers. You have a responsibility to that. Not to take that gifting and to sit on it, and not to take that gifting and to use it for selfish gain. But if you were to take a, a leap, and we'll come back to it later, verse 16 ends this passage saying what? When each part is working properly, makes the body grow up uh, so that it builds itself up in love. When each part's operating, when it's functioning properly, it builds the church up in love. And somewhere... Somewhere along the line, and we talked about this a bit in the small group this week, if you were there, somewhere along the line, we adopted this thinking or idea in our heads that ministry is just for the professionals. Ministry is for the, the paid staff and the pastors to do. You let them take care of that, and, and we show up and, and we're ministered too. Responsibility has been given to the quote-unquote professionals that are, I would argue are not professionals, just gifted and called to a different role. Each of us has a role. What role does Paul outline in this passage for those leaders? Verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Shepherds and teachers, that's where we actually come up with the term pastor from, if you didn't know that, uh, that, that word for shepherd there. For what? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Paul doesn't say that, hey, we, Christ has given pastors and teachers and evangelists and all these people to do all the work for you. He says, no, he's given them to equip all the saints to do the work of ministry. D.L. Moody is quoted as saying, and this, man, I'm just going to level with you guys. This is like convicting to the pastor. D.L. Moody is quoted saying, it's better to put 10 men to work than to do the work of 10 men. Same amount of work gets done, the work of 10 men, but it's better to put 10 men to work than to do the work of 10 men. And somewhere along the line, we have flipped that. And it's not just, it's, not, it's, it's everybody has responsibility in that. Even leaders, myself, Sometimes it's easier to say, let's just get something done and do it. But the high call that's placed on the, the leaders in the church is, is to function kind of like those of coaches. If you were to imagine the, the church like a, a professional sports organization, you've got the GM, right? That's God. He, he has built the team. He's brought the whole team together. He said, here's, here's the skill sets and the people that I have brought onto this team. And underneath the authority and, and the headship of that one is given responsibility to the coach to take that team 
and to position those players, to position those skill sets, to be in a place where they might thrive and succeed, to position the team for success and victory. And if you will, for the illustration's sake, God has placed coaches in the church to say, hey, here are the skill sets and the people that God has brought into this local fellowship. How can this local fellowship position and utilize all these skill sets for his glory? Because when Paul speaks here of equipping, he doesn't have in mind that these leaders of the church are to go and say, hey, here's the tool that you need to do the ministry. He doesn't quite have in mind, here's, here's the skill set that you need to do the ministry. You'll notice back in verse 7, those gifts have already been given, haven't they? Those gifts have been given by the Father. The role of the leader is to equip, so picture that positioning, the restructuring to best utilize these things so that the whole body might work in harmony and in unity, building itself up in love to greater maturity. That's, that's what Paul has in mind here. That this team, this body would function in, in essence like a well-oiled machine. Each part fulfilling its job. Each part functioning properly for the benefit of the whole. There's no room in what Paul's vision is uh, for the church and living in the household of God. It's just, what, what does this serve me with? There is a responsibility put on each and every single one of us, every single one of you, on you, to use the giftings that God has given you for the maturity of your fellow believer, for the maturity of the church, to steward those things well. And what's this maturity? If you were to follow along, there's the building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, Right? And he uses this manhood and childhood uh, differentiation here uh, as you look at verses uh, 13 and 14. That we would be mature in our manhood, not like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That as we do this, in other words, a spiritually mature Christian and in a spiritually mature church is one that's not likely to be carried off by all these other doctrines. It is not one that's going to be caught off by, by cunning ideas and strategies that are, are godless, if you will. It's not going to be caught off by the, the winds of culture. But as a church, if you would, you picture a fortress that's heavily defended and well-armed and prepared to take and withstand the attacks that may come against it. Strong, immovable, this is not just the individual that Paul has in mind, but the body, this unity, this one body, this us together that we build up in this. Spurgeon often said in relation to this that beware it because error often rides to its deadly work on the back of truth. And so one in a church that's spiritually mature may be able to discern truth from half-truths and manipulations and twistings of truth, to stand firm in sound doctrine. So it's no wonder that Paul takes the first three chapters of the book to say, here's the sound doctrine. Here's the firm foundation. Now let's stand in that. Let's build on that. 
Not just our outreach strategies, not just our ministry philosophies, not just our moral good works, but know the foundation of who we are in Christ, what he has done, and who God is, that we might live in that. That's where it matters, because as Paul will write to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he, he uses the metaphor of the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is not just some like caught by the wind and brought off, but this is a a firmly standing, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And that is realized not when 20% of the church does the work and ministry of the church, but when every part functions properly. That's the reality of what Paul is bringing into this picture. And so the church is a place uh, that, that we are said, he says here in uh, this this uh, passage, but rather speaking the truth in love. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I hear the term speak the truth in love, what do we think? Just some sort of confrontation, like, yeah, I get what's going on, but, but we speak the truth, but in love. It's almost like we use a license to just call it how it is and, and not really be intentional or, or caring about how we're perceived and understand. But I don't think Paul's... Uh, intention behind using those words is what we have often made them to be. It's not just about confrontation. It's about everything that we do, we are speaking truth. Literally, Paul uses the word, we are truthing in love. We are truthing. We are abiding in truth in love. That's the church. That in what we do, in our fellowship with one another, We truth in love. Who's the truth? Jesus Christ. What's Paul's prayer? That we might be able to know and comprehend with all the saints the height, breadth, depth, and width of the love of Christ. Christ is this foundation. That's why when we grow to mature manhood, we're not just becoming more mature individuals but we are becoming Christ-like. If we do that, as each of us use those gifts to serve one another, and as we do, guys, we spur each other on. The team becomes stronger. The church becomes stronger. And as it does, it doesn't leave the individual behind, but the individual becomes stronger in the process. Living and thriving in the role that they have. So, I debated whether or not to do this, but I'm going to do this. And I want to speak for a moment to those of us who aren't currently using our gift in the ministry of the church. And I want to do this in in as much love as I can, and I want you to hear it that way, because I recognize recognize that 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 may be true of you for a number of various reasons. One, you, you might be newer to our church and, and you might be just trying to figure things out and, and you're settling in and you don't, you don't know what's going on and you're, and you're learning. And I understand that. There's a place for that. Let's learn and grow and let's have the conversations where we can find a place for you to plug in and use those gifts that God has given you to serve, to serve your fellow believer, to be a faithful steward of what God has given you. Second, I know, I know that some may be struggling to uh, be engaging and serving the ministry of the church because you just don't know how you're gifted. 
It's, it's like an enigma to you. You're like, I don't even, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know my place. And again, let's, let's talk. Because I know that can be a frustrating place to be, a, a, a difficult place to be. Not knowing what it is, but it, you, sometimes you figure those things out by just taking steps and trying and working. And as you do, God leads and directs and guides. And, and you start to figure out, man, I, God's gifted me this way. And maybe I didn't even know it. And here's a passion and a skill set that he's given me to use for his glory and his kingdom. Let's grow in that. Maybe you find yourself struggling in, in serving in, in the ministry of the church because you've been hurt by the church. Maybe this one, maybe a different one. And it's left you with some scars that are hard to deal with. Let your brothers and sisters come around and help you, minister to you, and help you to recover from that. But let's not stay there. Let's grow. Let's plug in. Let's use those gifts. Some people may be uh, having a hard time to engage in the, the ministry of church because you're just flat out exhausted. Life's running you in a million different directions. You've got enough going on. You've got a, a million things on your plate, and you can't figure out how am I supposed to serve in the church and do all that I'm doing right now. I'm physically exhausted. I'm spiritually exhausted. I'm emotionally exhausted. And I hear that too. But let's have a conversation. Let the church minister to you because maybe you're running at a pace that you were never meant to run at. I know there's one of you in this, in this building who challenges even me on that all the time. Slow down. There's a word for that. There's a place for that. There's a need for that. Maybe some of us are struggling to find a place to serve in the ministry of the church because if we're really honest, we just don't want to. Church is easier when there's no strings attached. Show up, don't show up. I'll come back next week, no big deal. And if that's you, in as loving a way as I can, I want to say this. You need to rethink your understanding of what church is. Because that's not church. Paul, in God's word, calls the church to be a place where we are doing life with one another where we are utilizing the gifts that God has given, not for selfish gain, not for worldly accolation, but for God's glory. And you, every single person in here who is a believer in Jesus Christ, have been given a gift by God to steward. And so you have a responsibility to your fellow believer and you have a responsibility before God to use that gift for his glory. And I encourage you and I urge you, perhaps maybe as Paul does, to take that seriously and to consider that. Because in some ways, as you look at this passage, it would almost seem as though that Paul is, is indicating that the degree to which we use or don't use those gifts in the service of the ministry of the church is the degree to which we do or do not grow to spiritual maturity. 
as you fail to use the gift that God has given you, perhaps you're capping yourself. Perhaps we're designed to be God's people who, who work and serve and labor diligently for the ministry of the gospel. And when we don't use the gifts that God's given, we throw it back in his face. And again, I'm not saying this to try to be mean. I'm not saying this to be judgmental. But I'm saying this because I believe it. One person said that the church, the church isn't a spiritual rest home. The church ought to be viewed more like a barracks training soldiers of the cross. So if your view of church is it's a great place to come and have a, be kind of just encouraged on a Sunday and then go do your own thing, it might be time to settle into the New Testament and take a look at what the church really is. It might be time to re-examine your perceptions of the church and to engage in what the church is doing, what God is doing in our midst. Because I think it's safe to say that Paul's vision of the church, at least in this passage as he is outlining this, is that a church that serves together, that serves one another, that's a church that grows together. There's a lot of work to be done. A lot of ministry to be done in this church, in our community. There's a great deal of work to do. And there's a lot of spaces where you can fit in. Everybody has a place. Everybody has a gift. We all share in the responsibility of this. A couple weeks ago, I referenced 1 Peter chapter 4 in my message in, in chapter 3. Peter writes this, he says, As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified in Jesus Christ. So use the gift that God's given you, not for selfish gain. Verse 7 levels that playing field. It is a gift of God's grace. Not to pat your chest, not to puff it out, but to serve and work hard in it to bust your tail for the glory of God in the ways that he's gifted you. And our church would love to come alongside and help you figure out what that's like. So if you're struggling with that, we'd love to talk. There's a lot of great blessing in this church. Because I say all this because I believe it. I believe that there's blessing when we use our gifts. I believe that Paul's vision of the church is one of active ministry. I believe that sometimes the strongest relationships we have with other people are with those who we serve alongside. I believe that if you're missing this, you're missing out. And so I'm not saying this to strong arm you. As a matter of fact, if you're feeling convicted in any way about this, I'm not asking you to sign up to volunteer right now. I am asking you to go have a conversation with the Lord about where your heart's at, where he maybe has gifted you, and then we'll have a conversation. Because it's not about your pastor trying to manipulate people into serving. It's about your pastor coming along and saying, guys, there is rich blessing in the church being the church, and I'd hate for anybody to miss that. The joy of serving God's kingdom, serving in the ministry of the gospel. What a privilege that has been given to us.
So let's walk worthy of the calling that's been placed on our lives in this place, in the structure of the community of the church, unified in one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, and given a multiplicity of gifts for one glory, and that's God's.